That was a section of Solitaire from cellist Syun Thorsten's daughter's new album, Vernacular. Syun Thorsten's daughter is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the Osiris Network. Visit the Osiris page on jambase.com to check out all of the various Osiris shows. There are about 30 of them at this point on all sorts of subjects, and the network keeps growing all the time, so I'm sure you'll find plenty of fascinating podcasts to listen to over and above any episodes of the Burning Ambulance podcast that you may have missed since this is our 40th show, and I'm sure some of you are probably here for the first time. Welcome, by the way. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to create more and better content on the website, burningambulance.com, and for the podcast, so kick in if you can. This episode is sponsored by Nugs.net, which is the destination for live music on demand. They have a growing collection of over 15,000 full-length concert recordings from bands like Wilco, Dead & Company, and Pearl Jam. So you'll never run out of live music to explore. You can listen to a show from last night or from 40 years ago. I recently started listening to some Wilco shows there because I'm a big fan of guitarist Nels Klein's other work, so I wanted to hear what exactly he brings to their music. And there's actually a lot more there than I expected, so... There you go. Maybe that's a place for you to start as well. It's available on desktop, iOS and Android apps, Sonos, and Blue OS. Just like us, the folks at Nugs.net are live music fanatics, so they're currently offering new subscribers a 35% discount on an annual subscription. Go to Nugs.net slash Burning Ambulance and sign up today. If you already have a subscription, give the gift of live music to a friend. Again, nugs.net slash burningambulance for 35% off an annual subscription. Syun Thorsten's daughter is not the type of musician who's typically on this show. She's a classical cellist from Iceland and has almost no background in improvisation, though she's been doing a little bit of it recently, and we talk about that in this interview. Her album, Vernacular, is a collection of four pieces by Icelandic composers, three of which were written specifically for her, and it's some of the most beautiful music I've heard all year. It's on Sono Luminous, a label that I really love. They release a lot of music from up north by groups like Nordic Affect and the Icelandic Symphony Orchestra and the Siggy String Quartet, and they've done two CDs by the International Contemporary Ensemble recording compositions by Anna Thorvald's daughter, who's an amazing Icelandic composer who I've written about on Burning Ambulance more than once. Anyway, this interview was really fascinating for me because I got to ask Syun all sorts of questions about the cello, about recording, about performing classical music, about Iceland, and about basically every aspect of her album and her career. It's one of the most in-depth conversations I've had on this show, and I really learned a lot. I hope you'll enjoy listening to it as much as I did having it. I'm going to play another piece of music now. Uh, This is a section of Portrait, composed by Jane Antonia Cornish from her album Continuum. And after that, you'll hear my interview with Syun Thorsten's daughter.
I have many questions, so I'm just going to like dive right in. Right. Um, you were born in Iceland. Uh, how long did you live there? I lived there until I was seven, when my parents moved to the states. Uh huh. And why did they why did they come here, for work or just? Yeah, my dad was doing his residency, um, actually. So he had done medical school in Iceland and was um, looking to specialize. So we moved here originally for his schooling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, how old were you when you started playing the cello? And was it your first instrument? Yeah, it was my first instrument. I was five and, um, well, I guess I should say that, you know, I did the pre, um, sort of Dalcro's, you know, uh, instruments like the recorder and, and, you know, percussion instrument, and like pre, is that kindergarten for music or something like, you know, that kind of thing. Right, but, right. But cello was my first sort of instrument that I really studied. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Were your parents musically inclined? I mean, where did the desire to play kind of come from for you? Yeah, my my mom is a violinist and um, taught violin all throughout my childhood. So that was, I think, you know, she would just take me along to her rehearsals and, you know, it's hear her playing all the time. And um, I think I just wanted to join in, you know, I just wanted to be with everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And are there are there cut down cellos for little kids? Because I imagine like wrestling with the thing might be a challenge all its own. Never mind like figuring out how to play it well, you know. Yeah, no, there are. Um, I think I started with a quarter size cello and then graduated up to half size, three quarters, and then finally a full size when I was big enough. Mhm. Mm mhm. Yeah. 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 I uh, I played the violin in third grade. For oh. about a half a year and decided nice. it wasn't for me so oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, but I that. remember it being a small a small instrument you know so. yeah yeah same type of deal with the cello yeah your your album vernacular uh, features all pieces by Icelandic composers yes. and it seems like just I'm sort of outside that world. I'm primarily in the jazz world, but it seems like Iceland is having a real moment in classical music the last <laughs> few years with, you know, Anna Thorvald's daughter who I've written about on Burning Ambulance and the late Johan Johansson. Most, I mean, they're the most notable ones, but there are a lot of other composers mm -hmm. around as well. So to what do you attribute the kind of wave of music coming from Iceland? Well. I think there are a couple of factors. Um, I think there is, first of all, there's a, a sort of do-it-yourself um, feeling in the Icelandic music scene and the art scene, that there isn't this history that is sort of looming over everyone of, of um, you know, hundreds of years of tradition and, um, and I just think that there's a feeling of like kind of innovation and and something that is is just allowing people to be creative. Um, there's not an expectation of you know the first thing that you write has to be somehow greater than anything that came before it. It's just you know do something because if you don't, no one else will. You know that kind of 
thing as small communities tend to have, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then I think there are a couple of things that have helped, certainly um, government support and even um, there's a designated office that is is trying to export and promote Icelandic music abroad, which I think has done a lot of really wonderful work. And then I think just a general, um, you know, well, first there was the, the crash in, in 2008, but then also the volcano eruption that just kind of put Iceland on the map and, and got a lot of people going there. Tourism has definitely increased. And that has made people aware of sort of the culture that I think has been going on for a while, but has just made it sort of, um, yeah, brought the limelight, I guess, to what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You uh, you say in the notes to the album that you dream in Icelandic, and that you mm-hmm. and that kind of made me wonder about something because it's a very small country, but mm-hmm. are there regional accents and dialects of the language and stuff? Do people in Reykjavik speak differently from people who live in like some <laughs> tiny town on the lip of a crater somewhere? You know? Who did you talk to? Who who put you up to this? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm genuinely curious because I mean. <laughs> I've I've never been there, but I've been to Norway and Sweden and Finland. Well, it's funny. And so, you know, I'm kind of curious about, you know, the regional regional mm-hmm. linguistic stuff. So, Yes. So I'm from Akureyri, which is in the north. And there we speak very differently and very um, distinctively, dif- you know, from the Reykjavik or the su- southern accent. Mm-hmm. And so... It, especially in Icelandic, um, when I speak, they everybody automatically recognizes that I'm from the north because I, I still have that very thick accent. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of a yeah, it's interesting because it's a it's a much clearer way of speaking, and I think because both my parents are from there, and also when I was growing up, you know when we would go quote unquote home during you know over the summers and things like that we would go home to Akureyri so we went to the north and 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 so that has really been ingrained in my speech ah okay yeah 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 I'm reminded of this uh this line from when they react when they reactivated the show Doctor Who the first guy that they hired to play the doctor was this actor Christopher Eccleston who's from the north of England and uh-huh. he has a very broad northern accent and <laughs> at one point the human being that is recruited to kind of assist him says you know why do you talk like you're from the north and he just looks at her he goes lots of places have a north oh <laughs> yes wow that's so. great I love that <laughs> The, uh, the first piece on the record, um, After Quake, is yes. a continuation of a piece called Quake, which is yeah. described in the notes as being for cello and chamber orchestras. So since most of the people listening to this probably are jazz fans like me, can mm. you explain a chamber orchestra? Like how many members, what was the instrumentation, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, so originally a chamber orchestra is just a smaller 
size orchestra. So there might be, instead of a whole sea of violins, there might only be one or two violins. Um, and so it's just kind of a cut down version. Um, this particular instrumentation has um, a few strings, only one of each wind instrument. Uh, yeah, that's right. But it does have a couple of cool um, things like a five string bass, which has an extra low string um, to get that kind of grumbly subterranean sound. <laughs> um, and I do believe he has a, a contrabassoon as well added. Ah, okay. Contrabassoon and bass clarinet maybe. So there's lots of low earthy um, sounds. Even though it's a smaller orchestra, I think he really utilizes uh, the low parts in a really cool way. Mm -hmm. And was that was that piece Quake recorded? I mean, is there a version out there? It is coming. Um, it was recorded for the BBC in January, but um, the recording that's the the album that's coming out is with the Iceland Symphony on the Sono Luminous label as well. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that should be coming out in the fall. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I get a lot of their stuff because I know Colin. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's great. There's a and. Uh, there's a text in the booklet by Oder Jonstadter. How does yes. that relate to the piece from your perspective? And did you know it before you started work on the music? Stuff like that? Yeah. She wrote a wonderful book. Um, it's called The Big Quake. That is... It's a novel about a, a woman who realizes that she has been having she that everything basically everything that she thought to be true was not true at all she had been having these epileptic uh seizures uh all her life and didn't know it and um and it just turns her world upside down and she goes through this emotional quote-unquote quake that really brings up things that um for her personally. And so Pauk was really inspired by this text, especially at that moment that she realizes that everything was different than she had thought. Um, and that was sort of the inspiration for Quake. And Eider heard, she actually came to the premiere. Um, it was really a beautiful moment. Um, she lives in Germany and when I played it in Hamburg, she she came and, and um, when we had when we started to talk about Afterquake as the sort of sister piece, you know, continuing our exploration of this idea, um, Puck asked her to pick a text um, that would that would sort of go along or inspire or somehow you know converse with the the musical piece. And so this really, it's a, it's a, really a three-way collaboration because um, this idea of unearthing things within us um, really comes to light through the music and um, 
I just I just think it's such a beautiful concept that I think a lot of people can connect to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The uh, in the booklet you say that the piece forty eight images of the moon required some radical notation techniques. Can you <laughs> talk about that in more detail? Because I'm kind of fascinated by graphic scores and things like that. So which passages in particular were challenging and what kind of solutions did you arrive at? The Well, what's interesting about notation is that it's based on pitch, right? Like when we write notes on the page, we're talking about pitches. And for hundreds of years, that's been what we've been focusing on. But especially in Thurio's piece, she's more interested in the texture of the sound, the, the sort of infinite variety of what, what people might call white noise, but is actually has, has lots of pitches, maybe in, in overtones. And, and, um, and so writing a pitch on the, on the page is not necessarily helpful <laughs> because that's not what we want at all. And so she was very creative in um, writing down on the page instructions for me on how to get that um, sound, but not necessarily putting the sound on the page. Mm-hmm. So sort of putting, you know, move gliss your glissando your hand up the string while you move the bow in a circular way and that will create this kind of sound which is different from something um like scraping the string with the bow which is a different um notation yeah um so does that make sense she's she's she gives me what to do but not necessarily the sound that she's after. And so we had lots of conversations like, is this what you're after? You know, yeah, that's, that's exactly. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, I exactly mean, how it. much of that was, how much of that was one way and how much of it was two way in the sense that were there parts where you attempted a thing and it wound up being something she liked better than what she had in her head or you know things like that well she had some um she had a very strong idea of what she was after so i think it was more me trying to make sure that i understood what in the end um what she wanted for instance you know she's a flute player and so when she a lot of these gestures come from no sound and gradually come into a sort of white noise which then maybe becomes pitched at you know at some point and on the flute there's lots of variation of you know where you're blowing air over the the mouthpiece but there maybe isn't a pitch until much later but on the cello if I start to draw my bow over the string, the friction will will make a pitch almost immediately. <laughs> you know, it's much more immediate than that sort of airflow. So we had to find ways in which I could start the gesture without sound and, and kind of maximize that in-between moment where the, the bow hasn't quite picked up a pitch yet. 
but still there's there's something there um so there there were things like that that we worked on and and uh really stretched me to think uh more broadly about sound and and um yeah the sort of origins of sound mm -hmm. yeah the uh, and the piece is for solo cello but there's a field recording element to it as well so yes. were you listening to that in headphones while you were recording your part or you know how did how did the two things sort of come together yeah so it is optional i mean i think um sometimes when i have done it live i have not included it um, for various reasons and it does stand alone without it but for the recording i did have um, I had it actually playing in studio, I believe. I might have that wrong, actually. I might have had it in headphones. Yeah, I think I had it in, in a headphone in one ear. Um, and I was reacting to, not maybe specifically to what I heard, but there's a certain rhythm and a certain uh, feeling that you get from the field recording mm -hmm. and and a couple of really cool things that happened that that sort of um, you know kind of triggered something like I would play and then something would happen in the field recording and then I would play you know it, it was very cool totally coincidental but you know there are things like that that she really appreciates and, and often said you know don't uh, don't stifle those reactions, you know, go, go with that and, and see where it takes you. Um, and so that was fun. The only, I mean, I shouldn't say it's, it's not a problem, but it just made the, you know, that means that the whole, the recording of that piece was done in one take because it's so linked to the field recording yeah. that we couldn't splice really, you know, so that it's, it's one whole thing, which, um, you know, is always fun. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, yeah. the pieces, three out of the four, I think, were written specifically for you, right? Mm -hmm. So do you, did you approach any of these people and say, write something for me, or did they come to you and say, you know, I want you to record this thing that I've come up with? Well... Each of them has a different story, <laughs> um, but all three have, were very organically sort of, you know, we wanted to work together and, and, and at some point I realized, hey, I've got this, you know, pile of music that kind of fits well together and I, you know, I want, I want to record it and I think people should hear it and I think, um, and especially with Colin at Sound Luminous. I mean, he was, this was right up his alley. So, but the, um, as we had talked about uh, after Quake, that was just a um, continuation of our work together on Quake. And, and that felt very natural. In fact, you know, through our working together, I think Pauk even went a little bit further in, in sort of in that direction. And, and very much what we wanted to continue to, to work together so that was very natural um Thirir wrote the piece this piece for me and this was kind of a, a setup because 
um, there was an Icelandic music festival in Los Angeles and one in the Elbphilharmonie in Hamburg. And um, the one in Hamburg had an extra recital and a, and a commissioning opportunity. And so Daniel Bjarnason actually got connected us and asked Thurida to write me this piece that I played then on a separate recital, separate from Quake. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of a setup, but immediately working with her, I mean, I had listened to and, and been aware of her music for a long time, but never got to work with her. But it, I um, was thrilled at that opportunity. And then Haltor and I have known each other from almost a decade, and he had written a chamber music piece for me and my group back in 2010 or 11 maybe and ever since then you know he has he's had some ideas and we've been waiting for an opportunity but you know life gets in the way but he finally got this piece together and I just thought um, it was so interesting and he had such original ideas that that um, I really wanted to to make it happen yeah yeah what's uh what was the nature of the collaboration between you and the various sort of composers like you know you're not someone who just sort of takes what they give you so i don't think so what kind of suggestions do you make do you change things together you know does a piece evolve from first form to recorded form you know stuff like that there's always um, there's always a, a sort of trajectory, I think, of a piece of you know, especially for me. They each of them always give me basically what what they see as their um, sort of what they're imagining, and you know, you, they sort of put that in, uh, to the best of their abilities on paper, and then send it to me and I try my best to make make what I see on the page and from working with them into a reality and then at some point I get comfortable enough with their language and I get comfortable enough with um, you know sort of through questions and, and, and things you, you sort of back and forth that I start to, you know, it starts to become part of me, and it starts to become part of um, my sort of body and I and I and and mind, and and I think that's when it starts to take on a life of its own, and that is to me is the most fascinating journey of of a piece of music is when it kind of starts to transcend both what I think about the music and maybe even what the composer had thought about the music and it starts to have this kind of universal picture um, and and that's really kind of what I'm trying to capture in the recording of this even though it's different live and, and you know every every time we play it it's that's the juicy part right that's that's when it really comes alive and and so even though there's um back and forth between me and the composer i think there's also a moment in which we realize oh it has to be this or it has to go that way or this needs more time or this could 
you know, this could kind of flow or, um, so there's the, that sort of practical part of it too, of, of just what it actually sounds like in a space is different than what it, maybe it's imagined in someone's mind, mm-hmm. you know, me, mine or theirs. Right, right. Yeah. And the last piece on the record, Solitaire, is the only one that wasn't sort of written, not not necessarily for the album, but recently. It's like an old piece that the yeah. composer has been revising for years. So when did you <laughs> first hear it, and how did you decide to include it? I think Solitaire was a the first sort of foray into Icelandic music. I remember this was when I was in college and my teacher said, you know, you're Icelandic, you should find your niche and find Icelandic music to play. And I kind of went, well, what, <laughs> who, I don't know anybody, what do, I, what do I play? You know, I was playing Bach and Beethoven, you know, what, there's no Bach, and, you know, an Icelandic Bach, it doesn't exist. But I did know of a cellist, he was the principal cellist of the Scottish Chamber Orchestra at the, at the, at the, Time, I think, and and I knew that he was from Akureyri, also, uh-huh. <laughs> and um, and I knew that he had played this piece a lot. He writ- wrote it for himself and and had had played it a lot. And so I actually just um, got the music and I and I started exploring it and immediately felt a certain ownership of it. Um, there was maybe also because it's a cellist that wrote it and he wrote it for himself and there's a night there's a knowledge of the instrument like what sounds good what fits well what um what kind of lets the cello do its thing and then there's also something about the language that was very accessible to me um and very familiar um I mean the harmonic language, you know, the, the intervals and the, the sort of, um, yeah, the way that he used that as an expressive tool, not in a romantic way, but actually kind of in a, in a, in a um, structural way that was very strong to me. Mm.
That was a section of Afterquake from Vernacular by Syun Thorsten's daughter, who is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. This episode is being sponsored by Nugs.net, which is the destination for live music on demand. They have a growing collection of over 15,000 full-length concert recordings from bands like Wilco, Dead and & Company, and Pearl Jam, so you'll never run out of live music to explore. You can listen to a show from last night or from 40 years ago. It's a great way to explore shows by bands you've seen or bands you never saw. I never did get around to seeing the Allman Brothers live, for example, but they've got a lot of shows uploaded, mostly from 2004 or so, and I've been diving in and checking those out here and there. It's available on desktop, iOS and Android apps, Sonos, and Blue OS. Uh, Just like us, the folks at Nugs.net are live music fanatics, so they're offering new subscribers a 35% discount on an annual subscription. Go to Nugs.net slash Burning Ambulance and sign up today. If you already have a subscription, give the gift of live music to a friend. Again, Nugs.net slash Burning Ambulance gets you 35% off an annual subscription. Anyway, here's the rest of my conversation with Syun Thorsten's daughter. The uh, the record was made over the course of like five days. Were any of yeah. the composers present, or was it just you and the music by that point? Uh, no, it was about half and half. So two out of the four composers were able to come and spend some time with us in the uh, studio, which was amazing and and fun. Paltor um, and Paut both uh, came and spent about a, a day. Um, on their piece and and just kind of hanging out and and it was really great to have them because it, it just it means so much to be able to in the moment you know kind of get their ideas and in fact in Afterquake we were still kind of workshopping the ending in the studio which was very fun too um, because we hadn't kind of we hadn't gotten to try some things, and so I, I was, yeah, it was kind of a, a exploration, and I, I remember so vividly, you know, we were trying four or five things. It was the end of the day, and we were getting tired, and you know, just trying to get something, you know, recorded, and finally. You know, something something happened, and all over the intercom, I'm like, uh, I just hear this big breath, like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's it, <laughs> and that's you know, just to be able to trust somebody to know when we've got it, and and when when it's something that rings true for the composer, that's the most amazing feeling in the world, you know. Yeah. 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 Uh, what can you say about the actual recording process? Was it all digital, or did you track to tape, or you know, how did it, how did you work? 
Um, it was, I, I believe it's, it was all digital. Um, I honestly didn't, wasn't aware of most of that. Um, the team, uh, Dan Mercurio and, and Dan Shores were so, it was like seamless. They're, you know, they're magi magicians over there. I mean, um, I got to hear some of the playback, you know, and, and, but mostly I was like putty in their hands and just <laughs> went with the flow and trusted them to handle all of that stuff. And it, I, I have to say that was so liberating for me. I mean, I was so inspired. Um, and even Padre will tell you, like, he's never seen me that inspired. Um, because you just get to create. You get to sit there and in this perfect acoustic, you know, that they've created with lots of modular panels for, um, re you know, which bounce the sound back in the perfect way and, and not too much. And, you know, um, they've got this converted church that they built into the studio. And, and it's just, it's a pleasure, you know, to be able to experiment and hear your sound and, and really just do a deep dive into the music. And then to have the people there to be able to say, like, you know, to guide you into the direction that, you know, that fits into the big picture and to be able to help you get the sound that you want and to be able to, I mean, it's just, it's something that I, if I could do that every day of my life, <laughs> I think I would, you know, it's, it's so much fun. So, um, so it's a fairly big room and like natural yes. reverb and stuff, or, or were you in like a little booth and then adding effects to a dry recording after? No, this, this is a, um, a church that they, that I was, yeah. Wow. Natural At and, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how many, uh, how many mics did they have covering you? Like, I don't know how one records a cello, particularly a solo instrument. So, you know, they had some overhead, um, you know, like room mics, uh -huh. but, but mostly, and this was so interesting to me, they had just basically one mic in front of me um, that caught most of the, you know, sort of very um, soft sounds that you were hearing. Um, so th I think they were able to balance those two things very, very nicely, um, both for the, all those textural sounds and then also for the, for the ambiance of the room. I think um, they were they were able to combine those in a very natural way. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. I have been playing this live now um, a little bit this spring, and these pieces, and there's just a an ability to capture sounds on the recording that you just can't get live. Even if I have a, a you know a, a pickup like right on my cello and you know, a great acoustic, there's, there's something about how they mic'd it or how they, <laughs> I don't know, mixed it or something that just is able to capture so much coming, you know, so, so clearly. Um, it's pretty, I think it's, it's kind of magic actually. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how they do that. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, a lot of, 
albums from Sono Luminous are released as two disc sets, like it's a CD and then an audio Blu-ray, and yours mm. is just a CD. Was that a decision mm -hmm. that you had any part in, and do you know why they made that choice? I don't. I think um, there's, I'm sure, lots of reasons for it. I think I, um, it's the first time we've worked together, so I kind of trusted them to make some of those decisions. Um, what made sense to them, but um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with the, the contents of what's there. So yeah, I'm not yeah. Sure what... I've never actually listened to any of the Blu-rays that they that they've put out, just because my Blu-ray player is hooked to my TV, so the CD would actually sound better, you know, oh, okay. through, through like my stereo. So, I see. than my little TV speakers. So it's like I've never, I you know. It, I think it also has to do with, you know, a solo instrument versus like a um, many instruments that are maybe able to like pan or, you know, do do more intricate things that way. Yeah, um, yeah. So maybe that was part of it. I don't know. But I, I sort of let them, you know, make those decisions. <laughs> <laughs> now, there Before Vernacular, you yeah. uh, you recorded Benjamin Britten's Three Suites for Cello in 2011. Yes. Yeah. And those pieces have been recorded many times. So what mm -hmm. were you looking to do in order to sort of set your versions apart? So what I found when I was learning the suite um, was that there was a continuity that I felt in each of the suites that I that I wasn't really hearing in the recording. So for this recording, what I was trying to do was feel the journey from beginning to end of each suite. And I actually recorded each suite on its own. Um, so I did um, the whole suite in one take. So it would start, you know, at the first movement and go to the last every time and I would, you know, do that. And of course, I would never do that again <laughs> because it creates a lot of um, problems in editing and, and mastering. But what I think, what I was trying to do was to capture that journey. And I think um, in some ways I was, you know, it's certainly not a perfect recording, but I think it was a different recording than what was out there at the time. Um, you know, a lot of, the, especially classical recordings, tend to splice down to, you know, notes where they'll take a note from this take and, you know, that from that take and make this kind of Frankenstein um, compilation. And I was trying to do exactly the opposite, um, trying to really honor the, the journey, even if there are flubs in the, in the middle. Um, but to really feel the transformation that takes place through each of the suites. That's, oh, that's interesting because I had kind of assumed that classical recordings were made like jazz recordings, that they are sort of as close to a complete take as you can try and get, so. I think, I, yes, they definitely try to do that, but because the standards are so incredibly high, um, for recording these days, what ends up happening is you can end up taking that chunk, you know, the beginning from this take and the ending from that take, and 
you know, the, this phrase from that one. And, and I just, and there are especially a, a couple of um, engineers and, and producers that, that are famous for just making perfection, you know, mm-hmm. um, down to, the, to each note kind of, kind of stuff. And I, I just think that there's, a, there's humanity that's missing from that. And I think that's exactly what I love about um, you know, jazz recordings in general, that there's a there's an expectation that something's going to happen, magical is going to happen, and and doing sort of bigger bigger takes. Yeah. In general, when you're performing a piece that's well known, what what do you do to imprint your personality on it, or whatever? If it's you know, if it is all there on the page. How do you sort of rise to that challenge as a player? Well, that's interesting that you say, you know, that it's all there on the page. I think, especially coming from a jazz perspective, there's a lot more on the page for you guys, but um, there will never be, you, you can't ever put an emotion onto, into notation. You know, you, you can get pretty close, but there isn't ever when I think um, something can be perfectly described or felt on the page. And so there is always a, um, whether you're aware of it or not, there's always, you bring with you your experiences, your um, temperament, your technique, your, you know, everything that you bring as an interpreter to every note that you play and the decisions that you make, whether you realize it or not, you know, what, what your contact point is, what your bow speed is, what your, um, what kind of attack you want, how you, um, how you finger something, you know, whether you choose to go up one string or go across the string. There's so many choices that are interpretive. And I always, of course, my priority number one is to try to find out what the composer wanted out of out of me um and, and what the music is asking for mm-hmm. and then i try to translate that into how i experience life or how i experience the music and and hope that through that sort of blood tri- in, infusion <laughs> that it will be more recognizable to other humans that are listening you know that that they will recognize something in themselves in that. So I really see it as a triangle. You know, it's a it's a composer, performer, audience triangle of all of us trying to grasp something that can't be put on the page, but is very human, and we recognize it when we hear it. But it's hard to talk about, hard to put on the page, hard to even. Um, reflect on sometimes because it's in the moment and it's fleeting and it's um and in, in the end we're all having our own individual interpretations or, or experiences of that music too but when we can share that i think that's the ultimate um ideal yeah yeah you in addition to your individual work you're also a founding member of the ensemble dakota and recorded an album with them uh, by Jane Antonia Cornish in 2015, Continuum. So 
what can you sort of say about the ensemble and about that record? Well, you know, the ensemble, it's interesting because it, it, we got together because of this, us wanting to have a bigger impact through music. Um, really wanting to share music with a larger audience than the typical classical music audience. And so we do a lot of um, school shows. We work in, in um, sort of non-classical venues, um, including uh, prisons and, and, and lots of different um, hospitals and, and things like that. But um, for James project she really it was this is one of the few projects that was specifically only musical and um, it was a recording project and we just um, couldn't say no to because the music was so beautiful and uh, we did it at uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center um, and it was so the, the acoustic and her music were it was just such a great pairing um, I think we basically did it all in one or two days. I mean, it was very quick because we um, we didn't have a lot of time, and and so a lot of what you're hearing is is just basically, you know, our run throughs. Um, and it, I I think it was kind of a magical time. Actually, we were kind of new, and um, and working with Jane was was really really kind of um, kind of brought at least a, a few of us really brought us together so it was it was, it was a really um, beautiful collaboration and we've collaborated with her um, in, in some other projects as well but that was sort of our um, kind of first big project together Mm -hmm. I'm glad that, that, that it was caught, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And caught by the microphone. You uh, you also performed on Cornish's 2017 album, Into Silence. But mm -hmm. there you were sort of just a member of the ensemble and didn't have a solo feature like you did on Continuum. So what can you say about that music and about being sort of part of a cello section, you know? So what was great about that into into silence is that it was very cello heavy and so a lot of us we have a, a mixed instrument ensemble but we have four four cellists actually five cellists now um and so it was an opportunity for all of us to play together and we've actually that quartet that cello quartet has played her her pieces um nocturne a few times um and that was really fun um i think just sort of being in that cello sound, multiple cellos. Um, it's always, you know, I grew up in sort of group classes, Suzuki style, where, you know, you just feel that that cello sound. And it's very satisfying to me, you know, not being just by myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you done any work within improvised music or do you stay strictly within the realm of composition however that's you know however that's defined interesting that you say that it's like you're I, i'm seriously wondering um 
whether you follow me or you're, you're having me followed or something. <laughs> because <laughs> I just recently, in February, um, improvised in public for the first time. Um, one of the, well, the director of the School of Music at, at the University of Washington, where I teach, is um, an improviser as well. He's a pianist and improviser as well as a uh, composer. And we started to kind of improvise together and you know, get together and, and see where our um, musical languages overlap. And it's been really incredible um, finding sort of in the moment being able to respond to what the music or what the sound kind of lead us to and, and it's been incredibly freeing too so um, it's pretty exciting and I I hope to do more of that I'm not sure where that's going to lead me but I am certainly excited by the possibilities for sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What uh, what's your practice regimen like do you practice technical exercises and stuff to like increase your mastery of the instrument or do you mostly practice by rehearsing something that you need to perform or record, or is it like a combination of both? You know, how does it work for you? It's mostly a combination. Um, I think the technique, you know, there's such a emphasis, I feel, on technique, and I, I certainly don't want to forget all about that but I do feel that it always has to be in the service of the music so I've never really been you know I don't I don't play a lot of technical exercises I do play the scales I do play arpeggios I do you know I mean use that every day for warm-up but I also use for instance Bach as a way to sort of warm up my mind also and and, and um, just sort of musical sensibilities um, and and I wouldn't say that they're maybe the most technically challenging but I think it's so important that it always comes that the technique always serve a musical purpose and so I don't really like to get into um, that mindset of just playing notes for, for notes sake uh-huh. Um, so I, tr- so I try to do um, a little bit every day just to keep, you know, keep things organized and keep, um, yeah, keep keep me feeling on top of my game. But um, I would rather play things that stretch my technique and for for musical purposes than to do, um, yeah, technical studies or stuff, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And as a teacher, do you deal with students one-on-one, or do you lead student ensembles? Like, what do you actually do as a, as a teacher? <laughs> so I teach cello one-on-one. I have um, students that I, that I, yeah, see individually. Um, and then I do coach chamber music, so I, I coach string quartets and piano trios, and I, um, I drop into... Uh, other classes as well. I'm co-teaching a graduate seminar where I was sort of coaching on bigger issues of just performance and um, musical career stuff. Um, And 
yeah, so it's, it's the, the teaching part is sort of, the, I think, the newest to me, and I'm sort of finding my way of what, what I can contribute and what I can, um, and what the students need, actually, um, and how I can sort of fit in with that. But I, I'm feeling like um, right now the one-on-one stuff is the most sort of satisfying um, of the work that I do there. Mm-hmm. When you're, like, coaching a string quartet, how does mm-hmm. that, you know, like, how does that work? Is it like, you know, telling them to play faster or, you know, like, are you conducting or, like, what, you know, what do you, what do you do? Like, you know, telling somebody, I can tell you don't have that part memorized, so try it again. You know, I, this is all, you know, this is a completely different world to me, so I'm genuinely curious about this. Yeah, well... So as a coach for something like chamber music, I really see my role more as a, an enabler to enable the group to play better together, to enable the group to express what what their ideas of the music that they're playing are and how to try to help them to get clear on what their group interpretation is and, and, and ask questions of that they need to come up with answers in order to become successful at, at expressing the music to their highest potential. So it's mostly, um, like if you were to drop in on a coaching, I would probably be asking more questions than telling them what to do. Because uh-huh. um, I think it's important that they start to become self-sufficient um, and, and more productive in their in their rehearsals. I mean, part of that is also kind of making them aware of the kind of work that needs to go in before the first rehearsal. Like, they should know their part like they know their concerto or, you know, whatever, you know, they're working on. They should know the history. They should understand how their parts fit into the bigger whole. You know, there's no conductor. There's no leader. It's a... It's a collaborative effort and so each person has a lot of responsibility and so it's part of my job to make them aware of that but then once each person has sort of done their part coming together sometimes is hard when especially if there's a very there's a large space between one person's interpretation or opinion or the way that they're approaching it and how they can come to an agreement and really present something that that has integrity as a whole, but still including all of the ideas and the interpretations and the, um, of all of the members. So it's really more of a yeah enabling kind of uh, role that I take in chamber music um, versus I think in my individual teaching and I'm. I'm more focused on how to make that person a better cellist or a better musician or a better um, problem solver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you uh, when you perform as a featured soloist, how does that work? Do you, are you booked by the venues, by the orchestras that you're going to be working with? Like, how you know, what's the the logistics of it? So usually it's the orchestras that book me if I'm playing like a concerto as a soloist. Um, they usually have a program or a piece in mind um, for me to play. Um, but sometimes 
um, there are venues that that book me to play like a solo show. Um, so it just depends on each. Um, yeah, it, it sort of depends on what the context is for each thing. But usually, yeah, the orchestras have their season to, to program, you know, and then I will sit in, I'm a very small cog in a huge <laughs> operation where they they have to think about the balance of the repertoire for the season and they have to, you know, each conductor has um, an idea of what they do best and what they can offer and then how I or the piece that I'm playing fits into that um, is, you know, varies from place to place. Uh-huh. And how much collaboration is there between you and the rest of the ensemble? Do you rehearse together as much as possible, or do you just kind of dive bomb in and play the concert for which you've like prepared on your own? <laughs> well, I have to be super prepared. I mean, I, I have to be prepared. For me, the first rehearsal is just as important as the concert because that will ultimately... Um, what I need to do is to figure out how I fit in in that acoustic and that ensemble and, and be able to react to what's happening in the orchestra. Um, so, but in, in sort of a solo situation, I usually only come in maybe one or two days before the concert because that's just the, the way that... Um, sort of the, the, their rehearsal schedule work and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so we're expected to sort of have things ready at the, at the, to the best of our ability, and then the work is to uh, bring that together to make a real solid uh, presentation of the piece of music um, so that I'm not playing something completely different than you know what the orchestra is playing. Not that we're playing a different piece, but just tempi, phrasing, timing, all of that stuff. And the conductor really is that go-between that um, is kind of holding us together and, and enabling that conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm also a little curious about the marketing side of your career, because... Mm. To my understanding, classical music is heavily dependent on subscriptions and patrons and stuff like that. So yeah. do you spend a lot of time after concerts, like, hanging around and shaking hands with rich people and stuff like that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think part of what we have to do is, is connect with our audience. And, and um, it's certainly, you know... I think everybody wants to, especially if they've had a meaningful experience listening to music, I think they want to connect also on a personal level. And, and, and I think it's really it's a joy for me to be able to hear about people's experiences or um, meet the people in the audience on a more personal level. And yeah, I think I think I see that as, as not just marketing or, or um, you know, supporting the orchestra, I see that as just a part of of the the experience. You know, and um, and I think 
also with social media, also with, you know, all sorts of different ways. I think um, just being somebody that wants to connect with people and, and, you know, the whole reason for my playing music is to connect with people. And so it would feel strange to just go back and into my dressing room and just, you know, pack up and leave. I, I you know, that's part of, um, that's part of my job. I, I see it as, as, as something that I'm happy to do and cherish, actually. Um, it's meeting people and, and hearing, hearing about their experience with the music and how it strikes them or what they think or how, you know, how it, it touches them or, or, you know, how it fits into their lives. I think um, if it's genuine, then it's always, always interesting. Have you seen a change in your audience over the course of your career because I feel like there is you know as we discussed earlier with the wave of attention being paid to Icelandic musicians and Icelandic mm -hmm. composers there's also I feel like maybe a slight drop in the age of the listening audience for that type yep. of music so who are you definitely. meeting at performances and stuff like that? I I definitely feel that. I think when I was just getting out of school, you know, people didn't really know what Iceland was, and it was kind of like, oh, interesting. Like it it was sort of superficially kind of a um, an anomaly or something. But now, and and not very much interest in Icelandic music in general. Now, probably you know, ten years later, there's much more interest in Icelandic music. There's, it's a younger audience, and I think it's a more curious audience on a intellectual and, and sort of um, emotional level. Um, I think it's just it's developing in a different direction, and I'm I'm also it's it's also having to do with you know the opportunities to play that music. I think. Um, Orchestras weren't really willing to go there um, when I was starting out, and you know I was playing Schumann Concerto and Vincent's Concerto and things like that much more than you know, and I wasn't playing any Icelandic music. And I think that's just a direction I think that we're going in in general, and I think it, it's probably a good one um, in that it's it's coming from maybe a different direction than we have in the past in terms of reaching a different audience. Yeah, yeah. And I guess my last question is, you know, you mentioned that, uh, that there's a recording of Quake coming. And yeah. so what else have you got, uh, you know, coming up? What's, what's happening the rest of the year for you? Yeah, so Quake is, is coming up. Um, I actually, speaking of, you mentioned Anna Solosotis um, earlier, she's writing me a cadenza for the Haydn C major concerto, which I think is kind of encapsulating what we're talking about in that we're taking a super old, very classical, very standard piece of music that's on every single orchestra audition that <laughs> 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 anyone ever plays and she you know they they had this tradition of an improvised one or two minute cadenza in these 
in these concertos where the soloist, you know, the orchestra stops and the soloist just does a solo. And that's kind of gone by the wayside and we've been taking sort of um, cadenzas from the earliest, earlier 20th century or mid 20th century from these sort of virtuosos that just kind of become standard practice. And I actually asked Anna, who's also a cellist, to rethink that a bit. And she had a wonderful way of explaining her approach, which was that she asked this piece that she was very intimately familiar with because she's played it as well. Um, you know, what, what will you allow me to say, you know, 300 years after you were, or 250 years after you were written, what, what kind of conversation can we have? And I think that's exactly what we should be doing with these older pieces that, that are incredible, and that's why we're still playing them. They're these you know, great masterpieces, but what, what conversation can we have today with those great pieces of the past, and, and how can we move them forward with us? Um, so that's, I'm really excited about that. Okay, that was my conversation with Syun Thorsten's daughter, and that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if so, I hope you'll consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to improve the content on the website and the show, and maybe even start creating some exclusive content just for subscribers. So visit patreon.com slash burningambulance and throw us $5 a month if you can. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one. Osiris.